of this letter. Paul is the author of this letter. Timothy, of course, being a young mentee or protege of Paul as an elder in the church of Ephesus. And these letters are important for the church first and foremost because it undergirds our faith. It teaches the elders who they are and what they're supposed to be doing and how the church is supposed to respond to the authority of the apostles as well as it corrects us and teaches us and disciplines us to be the people God has called us to be. This is old news um, because for everyone who has known me for any length of time, I am very repetitive. I don't change what I say. I don't change how I say it unless it's necessary. And sometimes it is necessary. But I'll tell you this, beloved. The church is not something we do. Church is not a place we go. Those two little things to say, I go to church and I do this or what have you, are two of the most demonic things that have ever taken place in the context of Christianity when it comes to the assembly of God. We gather together as the body of Christ, and in doing so, we gather together by the command of Christ, and we gather together by the blood of Christ, and we are together by the power of Christ. To say that we just go to church is to say, well, I'm just going to see if I can find me a girlfriend on the side. It's an abomination. But our culture has created not just false gospels, not just false Christs, not just all sorts of false iterations and watered-down iterations of theology, but most importantly, and let me say that again, most importantly, our culture has established a false narrative as to who the body of Christ is. Not according to the scripture, but according to the reasons of man. Beloved, we are a family of faith. Our byline, if you will, 10 years ago in September, was that we would be a people for His glory by His grace. What does that mean? That means, number one, we are collective a people. A people of all nations, tongues, and tribes, maturities, economics. A people who, some are pretty and some are not so pretty. A people who are going to be mature and a people who are going to be infantile. A people who are going to be walk in a manner worthy of Christ and a people who are going to really mess it up. But we come together because we are in covenant with one another. We are in a contract. And that contract is that God himself called us to be part of a people, of a family. Not an ambiguous, invisible. There's no such thing as the invisible church. In the context of America. Now, theologically, yes, we know that there is the celestial things that are talked about in Scripture. There's the universal church and that it can be known as, in a way, all believers of all time throughout all history forever. However, the very definition of being a people and assembly is that we are locally, collectively, right now, connected. We're connected. We're together. That's the point. I don't have an invisible marriage, you know. I don't have an invisible family. Well, I've got family out there, so I've got children out there somewhere. I mean, that's not a positive thing to say. 
I don't remember where all they are or who they are. I've not met most of them. I mean, that's not okay. But yet we've bought the lie of the enemy. It's a subtle. See, the enemy doesn't lie boldly. It is the coming that this is wrong. That's obvious. The obvious that we're not intelligent people. We're not an intelligent being when it comes to theological things. We're easily snookered. We're easily snookered. And we're mostly snookered and trying to spiritualize certain ways of living and doing things as if they are the very thing that God wants from us when the scripture says the exact opposite. Paul writes to Timothy in that regard to make sure that we don't listen to things that are taught to us that are not according to Christ. And 80% of what Paul writes is about how we live and act and speak and think and do and treat others. There's an assumption in the context of the apostolic teaching that everybody understands the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus expresses it in such a small manner that he says children are the epitome and poster children, as you will, of what faith should look like. And children who submit to their daddies and mommies are the poster children, pun intended, of what the church should look like submitting to the Lord Jesus. It's simple. It is so simple, it fights against the grain of our flesh. Because our flesh loves to say, sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. Oh, but aren't we little workers behind the scenes? Aren't we the ones, are the, like the men behind the curtain, for those of you who are old enough to understand the, you know, the, the, the well, it's not the original, but the one that we all know is the original Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You see all this Tempest stuff, and there's this little old bald-headed man back there, oh, pulling levers and all. We literally live like that as Christians. We think God is sovereign, but we know that what we're doing back there in our little sewing closet is really helping things along. What we're doing back there in our little keyboards is helping things along. What we're doing back there and, you know, we're standing our, pitting our business elsewhere. We're not helping God along at all. And the cool thing about that is because we can't help God along at all, we can't hinder God at all. So Paul is not writing to Timothy so that Timothy can work himself to the bone and be exhausted and stressed out as an elder thinking he's got to manage everything and everybody to get them to do everything that they're commanded to do. No, it's very simple. Now why is that the introduction to this message? Because that's how I have felt for the last year and a half. Like I'm the little man behind the curtain making sure that the tempest of God is smoking and burning and the love of God is expressing it's not my business. Some people thought I was talking about them, right? I'm talking about you, I'm talking about me. I ever, never, ever talk about anybody but me in this pulpit. And people who charge me that are liars. Or they're God. Because only God knows my true heart. So to say what someone else is meaning when they say the opposite is to be a false witness. And beloved, we lie all the time. We lie to ourselves. We lie in our prayers. We lie. We act like, oh God, you've got it. What is the burden of the believer to rest in the Lord Jesus? So let's go here to this text. We're going to be in this introduction, chapter verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, for the next three weeks after today. We're going to still be here because I want us to rest before we move on. Why? Because we are bent 
We are bent in our flesh to get to these things. And when we get to the very nature of Paul's first commandment to Timothy and to the church that he shepherds, the churches that he shepherds, um, <laughs> we're going to have a problem if we're not at peace. Because there's nothing more American than presenting a problem and then opening up a volunteer line. We all want to be Isaiah, right? Send me. You know what? In all my years of ministry, I have seen many, and I've worked with many different types of denominations and theological bents. I've seen, I've met people I didn't even know existed in the cosmos. And now I'm learning some of their terminology, things that you would never know, you'd never know. But almost everybody that I know in the context of Protestant evangelism, Protestant evangelical type churches, they're always on mission. And they're always sending somebody or something or some money. <laughs> and that has boiled down the uh, you know, evangelical life. But yet the New Testament wasn't written to send people. The New Testament letters were written to settle a people. To settle you, to sit you still, to make you stay, and to satisfy your heart in Christ. Now some of you may not believe that, and that's okay. You don't believe the Bible. Isn't that dogmatic? But that's true. I'm reading from what the Scriptures teach. I'm showing you. If you just read the New Testament letters over and over again, you will see that the instruction to the church as a whole, by and large, is nearly always sit still and be settled and serve. There's a three-point sermon. Somebody take that and go get an A. I mean, that's what it's about. What should you be doing? What we, should we be? But yet, the world at large, we don't even hear about the settled saints who are sitting still satisfied in their souls. Look at all those S's. Boy, it's just coming off like poetry. I need to cut an album. This is silly, pun intended. We don't hear about that, though, do we? No, we hear about those radical Christians, those over-the-top guys, busting down walls like the Incredible Hulk or Bobby the Brain Keenan or whoever it might be from your wrestling generation. Coming in like Superman, laser beams flying across the nations, blowing away hurricanes for the cause of Christ. Who are those people? It wasn't Paul. 90% of Paul's ministry was done from prison. Sick. And if it weren't for Luke, God would have never written. You see what I just did? Yeah. No. God was going to write those letters. No matter who it was. And the amazing thing to me is, I believe historically, according to the writing to Timothy, I believe that John Mark was the one who actually sat down and helped get all this stuff done, finish up these apostolic writings, and get them into the hands of the churches across Asia Minor, Palestine. That was a Palestine. That's where all this took place. So here we have this text, we have this teaching, we have God speaking. And if we don't have peace at the center of it, if we don't understand peace, I mean, how many times do we say it? We've, this season, we've become so cliche, 
as brother and I were talking through text yesterday and the day before, it's become so cliche in the Christmas season that I'm cynical over it sometimes. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. <laughs> Give me the Grinch, take all the trees down, burn down the gift packages. You know? Because it's become cliche. Peace, peace. You want peace? You think it was peaceful for Mary to be a virgin, a child, a 13-year-old child? You think it was peaceful for her to be out of wedlock, pregnant? No. You think it was peaceful for her to go into an unknown territory, ready to give birth, to be under the commands of God? You think it was peaceful for Mary to give birth in a basically animal park shelter? You think it was peaceful that the very fact that she gave birth made the king want to kill all the children and that they had to run and live in Egypt to escape death? Peace on earth? No way. And then all of a sudden, who were the first evangelists? Gritty old nasty, low-life, thug scumbags called shepherds. Now, I've got friends who are shepherds, and they're not thumbs, thugs and scumbags. But in the first century, that's what they were. Hey, y'all, angels told us there was coming the Messiah. Get away from me. You stink. These were unclean people, socially unclean. They were not proper. They weren't the ones to send. They would not have been NAM-approved missionaries. They didn't fit the profile. Certainly wouldn't have come from Utah. I mean, wouldn't have happened. No, there was no peace there. But yet the scripture says there was peace on earth. Why? Because God came to earth in human flesh. There was not peace in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. There was not peace when he began to preach. There was not peace at his baptism. There was not peace at John the Baptist's birth. John the Baptist's promise. There was no peace there. The world was not at peace. Israel was enslaved under the rule of Rome. There was no peace. And yet, even those who had the oracles of God, who knew the promises of Mashiach, Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, to come to save his people from what? Their sins, not their oppressors. Even though we read that out of Psalm 130 and then Psalm 119 last week. Without the Spirit of God teaching us the simplistic gospel of grace, we always think fleshly, don't we? Oh, there's our Messiah. I'm going to join his army. I'm going to be his soldier. What does it mean to be a soldier? Rest in his power. What did the soldiers of the Exodus look like? There's a tornado of fire. There's a tornado of smoke. We're hungry. Oh, bread on the ground. What were the farmers of the Exodus? You want some bread? But what does the flesh do? Comply, complains, and complains, and complains, and fusses, and bickers, and fights, and strife, and envy. That's the exact opposite of peace. The word peace has a lot of different meanings. It's got one focus. It's got one focus. 
In Matthew chapter 11, well, let's, let's read there. It says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from the anointed one of God, Jesus, who is our Lord. So the first thing we need to understand about true peace is that there is no such thing as peace except that which God ordains. Except that which the gospel guarantees, not provides, guarantees. I have to be careful. See, we have to be careful with our words. Peace. In Matthew 11, it's a lot in there. Matthew 11, maybe I'll preach out of Matthew sometime in the next few years. The whole thing. Starting in verse 25, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth. You know, Jesus is our Lord. He is our God. He is from heaven. Okay? There's theological things there. Jesus is God in all ways, at all times, eternally. He prays, the Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things. Now, what is he hidden? The understanding that is taught very simply in a childlike, a, a, a toddler-like expression of Jesus' parables. A toddler-like. I grew up with a book. I've still got it somewhere. But it's Aesop's Fables. And we found a reprint and bought it for my youngest daughter. And some of those things scare her. But she gets the point, you see. And when Jesus taught in parables, children could get the point of the teaching. But adults sometimes don't get the point of child stories, do they? So unless we are born again as a child by the Spirit, we won't get the point of the teaching of the gospel. We'll apply it and apprehend it in a way that manifests our ability to apply it. And then we'll mess it up. So Jesus says, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and from the understanding and have revealed these truths of who I am and what I came to accomplish to them, to the little children. But then he says in verse 26 of Matthew 11, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Why don't you think about that for a second? To have the peace of the Lord does not mean that you have put together propositions to the place that you're at, you're okay with it. And that you have a sodded list of supplies, theological supplies that will establish some hope in you. The gospel, peace, is a supernatural work. And when our flesh is opposing the simple gospel, as believers, as converted, as regenerate children of God, our flesh opposes the God. You know that, right? Sometimes I say that, I'm not lost. 
I, nobody said you were. But if I said you were, all you have to do is proclaim the finished work of Christ and say, this is what I trust in. I'm like, well, praise God, me too. We're all together. Just share your testimony. Share, your, share the testimony of Christ, you see. But no, the gospel that we oppose sometimes is our only salvation, but our flesh wants to rise against it. That is the point of the church together in a settled way. We are supposed to come together, and the overseers are supposed to take care of making sure that the sheep follow the instructions of the commands of God found in the Scripture and obey it so that we don't go off the cliff trying to make things work out in our own power. That's what it's about. That's all that church is. That's all the assembly is. And then as we're going along, keeping the peace together, obeying the commands of God's Word, then we meet each other's needs along the way. And quite honestly, we create some real intimate friendships. Until something we don't like steps up underneath our toes. I was eating some salmon the other day. I've never in my life had a piece of good salmon that had had a bone in it. But there was a bone in one of the things of salmon. I'm just eating, and I, look, and I eat salmon very slowly. I just love it. Without little teeny tiny little flexible bone went right up my gum line. And that disrupted my meal, y'all. <laughs> I got like a, a self-induced root canal all of a sudden. And it didn't matter how the flavor of that meat tasted, how awesome the meal was, and how what a wonderful cook my wife is, and all these things, all these things that I was thinking about, how, you know, this is awesome, and she loves me so much. And, ah! All that went out the window. I didn't care. I didn't taste it anymore. The pleasantries were gone, you know. And I've got enough cooth to not throw the food in the, so I move it over, and then I'm like, i got to, dismiss myself and I mean it was it was painful that's what happens when things are good you know we act like children we live like children we, we're getting together but somebody somebody says something we don't like or does something we don't like or snatches our toy from us sometimes we get upset and the sweetness and the savoriness of the unity we have in Christ sometimes wanes and it becomes sour and then we got bones in our gums and we in our flesh then try to say well we gonna fix this and then we hire geneticists to try to debone salmon from birth. I want an egg. I want something. I want, a, I want a cell that salmon will come from from now on. And I want them to be like jellyfish. I mean, could you imagine? That's what we do. That's what we do. And we're not resting in the sufficiency of what God has given us. And we're not at peace. We're not at peace, beloved. And when we're not at peace, listen to me, when we're not at peace, Scripture says we're in sin. Now what is it like to sin willfully? It's horrible. And we all do it. What is it like to discover we have sinned willfully but unbeknownst to us until we get through with the little fit? Oh, you know? That's, that's me, you know. That's why I'm... I try to stay quiet. That's my, that's my MO. Don't say nothing. Because what's, what's in my mouth, it comes out, it's going to hurt. <laughs> you see? I'm a murderer at heart. I've told you all that for years. I'm not, I'm not joking. I just soon cut somebody down and make them cry in the corner and walk off smiling. And you think, oh, Lord, is he even born again? You better believe it. 
And some of us would walk around and say, you know, I would never treat anybody that way. You're not going to get to heaven by not doing it either. Only way we have eternal life is in the finished work of Christ, you see. And there's going to be a lot of fits, and there's going to be a lot of errors, and there's going to be a lot of problems. Through the years, there's going to be a lot of bones in our gums. But, beloved, the peace that we're looking for is not found in deboning. It's not found in getting along. It's not found in anywhere but Christ who died on the cross to save us from our sins by substituting himself under the righteous, justice, wrath of God. That is the good report. Let's stop calling it the gospel because that, too, has become cliché. So as a people, we are to be about keeping the peace at all costs. And when we get people who don't want to keep the peace, what have we talked about? What has the scripture talked about? We set them at arm's length and we have nothing else to do with them until they learn to stop making noise. Peace. The word peace. If you, look, if you do a word study of the word peace in any translation... Uh, Hebrew, the Greek. I don't do a lot of Hebrew stuff because Jesus' Bible was Greek. It's good enough for me. And, you know, <laughs> sorry, the Hebrew scholar in the room. I'll, sorry. But, you know, what, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that you can learn a lot just by looking at the different definitions of the words. But I'll tell you, when you look at the definitions of the Hebrew and the Greek usage of the word peace in, in the Bible, you find it's all about the same. There's one that I like the most that says to be quiet. Peace defined as quietness. Another one is be still. This is about children's ministry examples, right? Be quiet, be still, the peace of God, right? Is that not the peace of God when the kids go to bed? Is that not the peace of God when the relatives leave? Is it not the peace of God when everybody, you know what I'm saying? I mean, when, noise, 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 noise. Shh. Oh. You love it, but you love it also when it goes away. Harmony, being in tune, being at one, being free from disputes, peace, to be satisfied, to be complete, to know joy, to be well, to be settled, tranquility. And most of all, I can point every one of these things to the picture of Sabbath, rest. And that's what peace is. Rest. I'm not talking about tired. I'm talking about rest. I'm about not waking up after 10 hours, if you could ever sleep that long, and go, oh, I'm exhausted. I'm, not talk I'm talking about rest. I'm talking about all things are well. We sing the song sometimes in here, right, in our worship. It is well with our soul. Now, I don't care anything about who the man is. I know his story. It doesn't matter who he is. What matters is, is that that song, if understood according to the gospel, is true. When we are at peace, when the gospel work is working in our hearts, I'm not talking about unto regeneration. We believe. No letter in the New Testament is taught to unconverted people so that they can live like Jesus wants us to. It's people who are in the faith, and who are in the faith, the burdens and the commands of God are not a burden. We've already been through that in John's epistles. So those who refuse the instruction of the simple, living, peaceable teaching of the letters are to be considered unbelievers in our relationship with them. 
But the very fact that all the letters are written because of discord and things not being well and people not resting, it stands to reason that there's going to be that same kind of stuff with us. And beloved, it just compounds. The poor straw that breaks the camel's back, it's not its fault. It's all the other thousand straws on top of it, underneath it. It's like, that's it, I can't do another, I can't take another thing. So we take it all out on that one, but beloved, I'll be honest with you, I think a lot of times when our faith is waning and we are sitting in a place of unrest and we are distraught and we are in strife in our own spirit, it's because we aren't looking at the root, but we're looking at the very top of the cherry on top of the, we're looking at the stem on top of that Sunday. but the problem is the floor that the table's sitting on is weak. And the whole thing is collapsing, not because of this issue or that person or this idea or this politic or, or this disease or whatever it may be or whatever. It doesn't matter. The reason that it happens is because we aren't looking at Christ. And we aren't resting in him. We're looking to try to find Jesus as a housekeeper who will set our bed straight rather than being the very place we lay. The opposite of peace is discord, war, strife, worry, anger. And I think there's one specific thing that is the root of all these things, and that is fear. I think anger and hate and worry and anxiety, I think it all roots from fear. What is it that the messengers of God told the angels, told the shepherds on the day of Christ's birth? Peace. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have nothing to fear. See, beloved, we who have been given to Christ have nothing to fear. We cannot be separated from the love of God. We cannot be separated from His power. We cannot be separated from His promises. We cannot separate ourselves from God's love. We cannot separate ourselves from Christ. We can act like the devil and live like the devil and hate like the devil and kill like the devil, but we cannot escape His mercy. And the Word of God, by the Spirit, instructs us, and we, we rest. And it's a daily thing. How much pondering do we do in our own heads? How many conversations do we have? Remember, I'm talking about myself almost every time I talk about these things. This is my self-therapy. <laughs> I can't read your minds as much as many of you think I can. You've been listening to my conversation? I mean, no, I haven't. I don't have time to listen to my own head, much less yours. What we do, we talk to ourselves, we ponder, we think about things, or we escape from them by finding something else to entertain us to take our mind off of those things when what we really should be doing is praying instead of pondering, worshiping instead of worrying, being satisfied in Christ and being settled so that we can rejoice instead of looking for something that God has not promised God has not promised because as much as we want to talk about peace and we'll talk about this over the next few weeks Jesus even says out of his own mouth and I quote I did not come to bring peace but to bring a sword what does he mean by that did Jesus come to cause strife against the believers and the unbelievers yeah 
But those who are believers will listen to his command and follow his prescription on how strife is dealt with. And then you'll be at peace in the midst of the strife. It's the craziest thing. It's insanity. I'll be honest with you guys. If people who are unconverted, especially experts in the field of psychology, they hear me say these things. They hear believers say this type of stuff and they go, this is wacko. You've got to remove yourself from the toxin. You've got to suck it out, spit it on the ground. You've got to get away. And that's not a bad prescription. Does the scripture not say that? Warn the man once, warn him twice, and then have nothing else to do with him. When people refuse to stop and rest and trust, they can't play. And that's what Paul's letter is about. That's what this letter is about. There were people teaching some trash to the church of Ephesus. Oh, settling their peace. There were people, like when James wrote his letter, there were people who were very egotistical. And in that particular occasion, wealthy people who hated poor people. Sound familiar? Politicians. <laughs> they don't deserve to eat. Why don't they work? Why don't they, you know. I'm going to get my job as CEO because there's only a few of those around. Not everybody can be CEO. But the scripture's written and the church listens, the assembly listens, the assembly loves. What if these persons aren't my brothers or sisters? Well, you've got to love them anyway. It doesn't exclude you from serving the very ones who are in the context of the assembly that God has commanded you by divine command to be a part of. Of course, we believe the right gospel. As a church, as a congregation, as the elders of the church here, Grace Truth, we hold to the truth of Christ. Peace is also understood as doing what aligns with the senses of resting and tranquility and quietness and calmness and unity and harmony. Doing what this requires and knowing what is true of these things. Back to Matthew 11. I lost some train of thought there. Here we go. Back to Matthew 11. I thank you that you have shown these as it is your will, these children, not to the wise, not to the intelligent, not to the understanding, but the re reveal them to little children, for such was your gracious will. See, the grace of God is to give the truth of his sovereignty and his sufficiency and his power to those who aren't looking to figure it out on their own. Now, what does that mean? That means to be born again is to be granted faith. Gifted faith. How was that? Through the granting of repentance. Repentance, nine times out of ten, does not come with a list of things that are obvious. To say someone must know they are deeply a sinner is ridiculous. Because that means that that's the magic witchery and the wizardry and the devilish stuff that they must speak with their mouths in order to be born again. So that our words... And our comprehension or God putting a thought in our head, that's the magic beans that we get to the giant up there and get the gold, the geese, the gays, the golden egg, which is Jesus. It's all on us. It's all just Arminianism repackaged. 
baloney. Those same people that would think that don't think a child can be converted. So that every child that dies is under condemnation. And the Bible doesn't say that either. The Bible also doesn't say every child that dies is not under condemnation. It's nonsense. Repentance is a change of disposition, a change of mind. That's all it means. It has nothing to do with stopping sin or knowing that what you used to do is wrong and now what you're going to do is right. That's man's work. That's a devilish humanism that comes straight out of the mouth of all the false prophets. Repentance is God's power causing you to receive faith. In his promises. Boom. That's it. Just that simple beloved. How can I be born again? You can't. You see. You can't. God must birth you in him. But that repentance. Grows and understands. And Billy Bob at the gas station. That you've always got your hot dog from in the mornings when you were in high school. He's been telling you the last few days when you talk to him about being born again and knowing that Christ is your hope for eternal life and that he saved you from your sins by dying in your place and that your righteousness is his righteousness only. All these little things and those words are hardly ever in the mouth of a new believer because they haven't learned them. And then Billy Bob says, hey, yeah, man. Jesus this and Jesus that and the Bible says this and the Bible says that and on the way to school you might think, well, I never thought about that. And then the Spirit of God through the Word, when the occasion fits, as God has deemed necessary, will teach you differently and you'll go, oh no, the Bible's correct. Billy Bob's crazy. Wolves love to eat sheep. You know what that taste is? You know what the taste of sheep blood is? Discord. Because in order to taste the blood, you've got to sever the skin. In order to get to the one, you've got to take them away from the flock. And beloved, that's what they do. That's the purpose of this letter. I'm telling you, this is what it's about. Peace is resting in every situation, in every circumstance, in the power of Christ and His purposes and His command and His word, knowing that even though it seems really ridiculous that we're flying at 700 miles an hour over toward a cliff with dragons and fire and everything else on the end of it. It's not like on a boat that we might survive in the water. No, we're going to die when we go over that cliff and we're going 700 miles an hour and the Bible says just sit still, take your hand off the steering wheel and just rest. I got this. Just rest. Here's what I told you you should do. Do these things and rest. It's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. And we see this illustration even in the life of Jesus and the apostles when he appeared to them in the boat. And he teleported the boat three and a half miles to Capernaum in John chapter 6. He stepped into the boat and immediately they were on dry land. They were halfway there, immediately on dry land. Boom, there you go. Teleportation. That is not a Star Trek invention. That's a Jesus thing. 
And they were at peace. Or when Jesus was asleep in the boat and the, the tempest and the storm and everything was about to devour them and they're scared to death and they're doing what they should do as good sailors, making sure that they do all that is required to keep them afloat. And the only thing that's going to keep them afloat is the peace of God who is asleep at peace, at rest in the bottom of the boat. And I guarantee you, if we were able to sit down and talk with the disciples, they would honestly have to admit we were livid with Jesus. He wasn't helping us keep this boat afloat. We're up here trying to save everybody, and he's sleeping. What a lazy guy. You know? Of course, this is just funny conjecture, but I guarantee you the flesh of man 2,000 years ago is no different than today. It's just now we've got the Internet. Instead of the camel net. And Jesus wakes up and says, Oh my goodness, you don't even have a little teeny faith. You got no little faith? Where's your faith? And Jesus goes, Shh, be quiet. That's what he said. To the what? To the sea. <laughs> Shh. That's what I would have done. Shh. I'd have snapped. And everything went went. I even made the sun come up. Now I'm going back to bed. Y'all think I can handle it from here? I've had it the whole time. You think you can handle it from here? I mean, we can't handle it. We can't handle it from here. We can't handle it from there. We can't handle it from anywhere. Dr. Seuss, here we go. We can't handle it. Somebody write that book. That'd be a good children's book. That'd be a good theological primer. You can't handle it here. You can't handle it there. You can't handle it anywhere. God has to handle it. Our green eggs and hams are going to be your least of your problems. You can't handle it. God has it. He has it. He has your salvation. He has your redemption. He has your faith. He has your repentance. He has your growth. He has your maturity. And when he is going to work these things in you, it is when you will be willing to submit to his word by his spirit And he will cause all things to work together. You know, you can be frustrated with somebody in the church, but you can't be frustrated with everybody in the church. And I've heard it happen. I've seen people get upset with a teenage child in a house of ten and divorce their spouse because of the child. Doesn't make any sense. That's what Christians do. Because they're not at peace. And they're trying hard to get everybody on their side to pull that steering wheel away from that cliff when what they don't realize is that what we don't see is what God has promised. And we're not in a boat. We're not in a car. We're in a plane. And we're just going to fly right over to the other side. We're just going to go higher. We're going to be okay. But if it is God's will that we are destroyed in the end, then we get eternal life for to live as Christ, but to die is far much better, Paul says. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty six, twenty seven, 27. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows... The Father, except to those the Son chooses to reveal Him. I want you to see that. There's two possibilities when we as Christians are in a swivet, as 
the great grands used to always say, you're in a swivet. I don't even know what that means. That's <laughs> what they used to say. What's a swivet? I don't know. Let's make them. Is that we don't know the gospel. We don't know the good report of Christ. We don't understand his sovereignty because we've never been shown. Or we're immature. We're immature. And while we may be mature in a lot of ways, all my children, they have maturity in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of things. And some of them, none of them all in everything equally. But... Some of them make good choices about money. Some of them make good choices about what they do with their studies. Some of them make good choices about what they do here, there, there. Some of the, but then all of them have horrible choices and very little maturity in other areas, just like me. You see? And it's funny, you know, now as a grandfather, I'm going, ah, I have so much to say. <laughs> oh, but I'll just be at peace. You know, it's my mom laughing out loud over there. <laughs> Told you so. Go ahead and say it. Yeah. That's right. When your children leave the house and they grow up, they become adults. And Yay, you're going to do exactly what I want, right? No. You're going to do everything right, right? You know, and one of my children had the wisdom to go, did you? What? Touche. I'll take the mark. I don't want to go, shh, <laughs> you know. No, you're right. We're going to mature at different times, in different ways, in different places. But ego and fear and all this stuff, it just drives us to the level of insanity to where we actually forget what we're looking at. So the other part of that is that we're just not mature in certain things. How do we grow in certain areas of life when we experience them for the first time? I mean, I remember being five years married, a pastor counseling people of 20 years in marriage. You know how stupid that is? If any of you ever find yourself in that position, call a friend for help. <laughs> Someone who's been there. That's why the plurality of elders is so important. Generationally different. Experientially different. Giftedness difference. Because if and I'm pretty solid on like half percent of the things that I am and know, but the other 99.5% of the things I'm just figuring out. And if I don't have you helping me, <laughs> we're all going off the cliff. And we're not at peace. How can I have peace? I practice the discipline of peace by the mercies of God because I have been through Pardon, hell, many times over. I've been through a lot of pain. And I look at it and I go, I wasn't that bad. And the Lord said, just wait. And we think we know what we're going to do in this circumstance because we've been through this circumstance, but until we go here, until we have this pop up against us, we are not going to see just how immature we may be in this circumstance. And I'll tell you, when it comes to your children, you lose your ever-loving mind. I don't even know what that ever-loving even means either. That's just an old thing that's always been said. Country folks, we're probably cursing the wind, but don't even know it. You have no idea? 
I mean, I'll get a free prison ministry if somebody hurts my kids from the inside. <laughs> you know? And I know that. I know that. But by the mercy of God, maybe he'll give me the grace to stay humble and at peace. What is it that we're going through this morning? Well, the, the, the elder's job is to help shepherd the church in times of conflict and times of peace. We're always supposed to be looking to try to make sure that your joy is complete. How is your joy going to be complete, beloved? It's to rest in the sufficiency of the gospel, of the good report of Jesus Christ, and the power of God and His promises, so that we are at one with Him, not only redemptively, through what he's done and accomplished, but also relationally in our hearts and minds so that we can look at others and say, wow, okay, this is not my burden. But yet we're taught. I mean, I've preached from this very pulpit many times. You've got to bear one another's burden, bear one another's burden, bear one another's burden. Well, beloved, to me, and this I've been going through this, to me, burden and peace are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Are they not? But they shouldn't be. God commands me to be in joy. To be, to be in joy. God commands me to be at rest. God commands me by His authority and His promises to be okay. It is well in my soul. But He also commands me to carry your burdens. But here's the problem. The old hymn tells us how to do it. We carry the burdens in prayer to the Father. We carry the burdens then to the scripture and go, oh, I can't help you, but listen to what the joy of the Lord says according to his promises. He's not going to take these circumstances away from you probably, but he will cause you to rest in the midst of them. See, that's the burden. And beloved, I've sinned many times over in many circumstances thinking that I had to not carry them to the Lord, but counsel them to resolution. The Bible says do this. I did that. Why isn't it resolved? The Bible says say this. I said that. Why isn't it fixed? I must do more. The Lord's out here and I'm looking for that curtain. Steamroller type type. You know? It's just back to the nonsense. It's back to the insanity. It's not peace. Christ has revealed the Father to us so we are at peace with God. We're at peace with Him. And Jesus says, and this is the whole point of the sermon, verse 28 of Matthew eleven twenty-eight. For those who has revealed the Father, who have been who, to whom the Father has been revealed by the Son, the Son is known. And Jesus says something. He says, "Come to me." Now, is this an invitation for salvation? No. This is to his sheep. These are to those who know he is their shepherd. To know that know he is their savior. That know he has borne them anew and bought them in his blood. We are the body of Christ. He says to his body, to his sheep, to the children of God, he says, come to me. All who labor. Work hard and heavy. And are heavy laden. Who have burdens on their backs that they're carrying. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Now, is that evangelistic? You better believe it. It's a good report. 
Should we share that with the lost? Absolutely. But we need to help them understand it's not their work of getting to Christ that causes the rest. It is Christ's work that came to us. And if they believe it, then God has established faith in them. Then God the Father has permitted them and granted them by the Spirit to see and to rest. And then we grow and to teach these people. And yes, a majority of people who profess to believe this end up falling away and finding another way that seems suitable to their flesh. But beloved, for the sheep of Christ, they will not fall away, even though they may step in a lot of holes along the way. And we have to trust in that. It's not in our timing. It's in God's timing. He will bring His people back around in His way. And then verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is it Jesus is saying without having to go into another hour? Jesus is saying, listen, I'll carry you where you're going. Because on my back and in my body I have bore your sins and the wrath of the Father. And I am carrying it for you. What is that? We learn from Him. How do we learn? The mind of Christ in Philippians 4. Though He was God in all ways equal with God. He did not take His divine self something to be bragged upon. As the old King James said, thought it not robbery. He did not brag upon the fact he was God. He always pointed to the Father. But he gave himself up as a slave obedient to death on a cross. Why? To satisfy the wrath of righteousness, the wrath of justice, the wrath of God for his people. So he took the great burden and now we rest in him. So in the midst of all these circumstances, first and foremost, even when we have a lot of work ahead of us and we do have a lot of burdens to carry and we do have a lot of angst and stress and stuff that we're going to have to be confronted with, beloved, the worst thing we could do is to pretend as though Christ hasn't carried the greater burden. And to forget that he has carried this burden and that the consequences of sin in and of itself is death, we will not answer that. Because he answered that. He paid for that. But this world we live in and the flesh that we are in, it will die because of sin. Relationships will die because of sin. Churches will fall apart because of sin. But even in the midst of it all, Christ carries it. He carries it. We learned in Genesis 3 about enmity. It's the opposite of peace. We learned in John 1, as John the Baptist would proclaim when he saw Jesus walking, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's not a message of peace to unconverted ears. There's nothing peaceful about slaughter. I want you to get it. Christmas is too fluffy as a holiday. From the cradle to the cross. He didn't come for the cradle. He came for the cross. He came to be a bloody sacrifice. 
an object of wrath, yet righteous in all ways. He came to be crushed and pummeled and destroyed and executed for the sake of our sins and our debt to the righteous Father. And the unconverted mind goes, that's awful. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In John 3, Jesus alludes to Moses in Genesis 11, I believe. When he's talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is zealous, and he loves the Father, and he loves the promise of Messiah, and he's teaching, but he's not born again. He loves the doctrine of Scripture, but not the object of Scripture. And there's a huge difference because only God, the Spirit, can cause us to sit and settle and rest. Moses, as Jesus would say, Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His Son, the only one that He had, that whoever is believing in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world in, that it may be condemned, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever is believing in Him is not condemned, but whoever is not believing in Him is condemned already because he is not believing in the name of the only Son of God. Beloved, the only true peace that we'll ever have, that will ever overcome all these other things, is the peace of Christ. And Paul would teach the Philippians, he said that peace that surpasses all understanding. All understanding. What does that mean? That means you can't put your finger on it and academically express it in such a way to cause other people to see the point. But we just proclaim it over and over again. Imagine this now. Paul's writing to Timothy. And all he says there is grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And that was sufficient for Timothy to be settled in his spirit. And Timothy was not in a peaceful situation. There was a lot of strife. Folks, we, a lot of us have been in churches, congregations, have been gathered together with people, we've seen some dark evils and some hatred and some things that never would resolve because people refuse it. We ain't seen nothing. And we've had our fair share of sins amongst us in the last decade. But we've seen nothing. We've seen nothing compared to what other people have seen. We've seen nothing compared to what Timothy had to do. I mean, can you imagine a barrage of false teachers coming in every week from outside and hundreds of people walking around and purveying heresies, going into people's homes and calling them on the phone and getting online and, and start talking about other people? Could you imagine that? Every day for years and years and years to the point when to be a Christian, the word Christian was a pejorative term. That means it was a mockery. Christ follower. It was a joke. That's where the term came from. It was, a, it was a stab at the people who believed. Could you imagine? Could you imagine your livelihood being threatened because of wickedness in the world? 
Could you imagine relationships deteriorating because people just cannot leave well enough alone and they want to be gods, warriors, and in their own minds, they're doing exactly what God wants them to do, yet it is exactly the opposite of what the Scripture has told them to do. And it upsets people. And yes, we've experienced tastes of that. And some of us more so than others. And we can say, oh yeah, I've been there. But nothing like they had in the first century. Nothing like they've had in other cultures and other countries. Yet in all the turmoil that was going on in the midst of Ephesus and Timothy, this boy, who's not qualified to build a house probably, is now one of the chief elders of a large city. And it wasn't this church and that church. All the believers in the city were his to see, oversee. Within the population of the borders of that governance, he's the pastor, one of many. And yet that phrase was enough to settle Timothy's heart. But then Paul did say, you can try some wine. It's okay to try some wine. Because you've got an ulcer. It might help you. It's medicine. <laughs> peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Peace. Peace. We have peace with righteousness because forgiveness is finished. We have peace within our own hearts and minds because our souls are satisfied in Christ. And as long as we keep with the teaching of our Lord in the Word of God, we will be able to be settled in the midst of, our, of the good report of the gospel, no matter how bad it is. And we also have peace amongst friends. The gospel unifies. And if possible, as long as it is up to us, we can call for peace amongst enemies, amongst the government, amongst those who hate the gospel. And there's a lot to be taught there. But beloved, we are satisfied and well because of the blood of Christ. And that is our hope. That is what the world has been singing for the last, well, since Halloween. <laughs> since All Saints Eve, All Holy Night. That's what the world has been singing. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But yet much of the world does not know it. But we know it because God has revealed it to us through His Word and by His Spirit, we have come to a place of rest. Now we must grow and learn and discern. Not just the doctrines of Christ and the things that we know to be true and to affirm them, but to expose in our own hearts, and our own households, things that oppose them. So that we as a body, as we come together, are purified in our relationships, and our understanding, and our knowledge. And we mature and we grow into an understanding of what it is that is required of us, and we do so, and we gather together all on the same plane because we are reminded of the blood of Christ that purchased us out of death. And that's why we take this little tiny reminder every single week about the Lord's blood and body being destroyed for us. So let's prepare our hearts to, as a body, remember the peace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this wonderful time of worship. I thank you, Lord, for your mercy in my life and in my heart and mind. And, Father, I pray that 
all of us as a family are experiencing that same grace. Lord, by your grace we have been saved and by grace you keep us. And by grace you comfort us. And by grace you grow us. And Father, we are humbled. And we do not know what you have for us tomorrow. We don't know what other things may come along to disrupt our peace. But we know that nothing can disrupt the peace that you have established in the body of Christ for us. Nothing can separate us from you. So, Father, in the simple way that you've instructed us in your word, Lord, I pray that by your power, Lord, that you would cause us, that you would cause us supernaturally, powerfully, to remember the good report, to remember who Christ is and what he accomplished, to remember that we are yours and nothing can change that. And Father, no matter what heresy, Father, no matter what enemy, no matter what emotion may invade that peace, Father, we pray that you would keep us focused on this. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And Father, we we are unworthy to be counted in the number of saints. But yet, that's what your love is all about. To love us because of who you are, not because of who we are. But in that, we also rejoice because we are your beloved. And while we were enemies, you bought us. And in your time, you will secure us by faith in the true gospel, in the true doctrine of Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts.